Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Net Positive. I am your host, Ted Flanagan. And for this episode, we're going to be talking with Matt Harper. He's somebody who knows an awful lot about batteries and battery chemistries. In fact, he's one of the world's leaders. We're going to be talking about vanadium flow batteries and how these batteries fit into a sustainable energy future. Matt, welcome. Thanks for thanks for coming on with Flanagan's Net Positive podcast. Happy to thanks. have you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Ted. Happy to happy to be here, and uh, great to reconnect with you as usual. Yeah, you look you look great. Are you in British Columbia as we speak? I am. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Vancouver, BC is home, and I'm, uh, I'm 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 that's where I am today. And that that's been home for your whole life, or were you somewhere outside of? Yeah, no, I was I was born in uh, I was born in Halifax, you know, the the complete opposite side of the country, but uh, moved here, you know, the family moved here when I was pretty young. Um, and then, you know, with the exception of uh, the couple of years I spent in Boston doing my, my master's degree, I've been here essentially ever since. That's great. Well, that's what a great place to be, right? It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous part of the world. For sure. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah. So when, when you were a little kid then, uh, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Did you think you were going to be a battery chemist? <laughs> you know, well, the, no, the battery stuff came, came a little, a little bit later on. I, I you know, I was always a, a tinkerer though. I, I always had, you know, the, 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 the horse, the, the sawhorses and, you know, out in the backyard and kind of building, you know, whatever thing I, I thought I could build with whatever material materials were at hand, you know, be it little bookshelves or a, you know, a sled or, you know, whatever else, um, you know, so I was always kind of building stuff. Um, and then, uh, and then I was, you know, in high school, I was, I, I, I was, uh, I was big into mountain biking. And so I, you know, my, my part-time job, um, after school was, was putting together bikes, at the local bike shop. And, you know, that turned into an interest in all things mechanical. And, you know, when I was thinking about what to do for, for university, it, it sort of nudged me in the direction of, uh, of mechanical engineering, which is, uh, which is where I ended up from, from my, uh, from my undergrad. Um, Interesting, because now bicycling is there's this huge explosion because of all the e-bikes. Yeah. When you were when you were when you were thinking about bicycles back then, we never thought about having a supercharged lithium-ion battery on board that would take us up a hill. Yeah. No. No. That's that's that that's exactly that's exactly it. Yeah. 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 I was dated that. So mechanical engineering at University of British Columbia. That's right. Yeah. So I studied at UBC and, uh, and, you know, I, I, from, from early days, I mean, that was sort of in the mid nineties and it was when there were a couple of sort of pioneering companies here in Vancouver in the fuel cell space, um, notably a company called Ballard Power Systems that was, you know, building some of the very first fuel cell powered plants for, uh, for, um, for, you know, heavy vehicles and whatnot. And I was lucky enough in my first, uh, just after my first year engineering to get on there as a, to do, to do an internship, um, that I ended up doing for that summer. And then I ended up there for about sort of 16 months, you know, for either full-time or part-time while I was, uh, while I was doing my second and third year of school, um, you know, just pulling a wrench, right. I was, I was helping put together, I helped put together the world's first fleet of fuel cell powered buses. It was a, a fleet of six that we deliver, delivered, uh, you know, here locally and then down to Chicago. Um, and that really sort of, you know, got me going on the, you know, the, the sort of the renewables train and, and thinking about, you know, the interesting technologies and interesting products that could be built, you know, in, in along the road to, uh, you know, having a less polluting, more sustainable future. Right, right. And then, and then off to MIT for, for graduate school, you got a dual, a dual yeah, I did a so I studied in something called a system design and management program, which is basically a you can think of it as 
you know, the fundamentals of a master's in systems engineering and an MBA sort of slam together and then you can do whatever, you know, elective courses you want. Um, so I, you know, I obviously did spend a lot of time looking at sort of, um, you know, energy policy and you know, the electric grid, um, you know, large scale, large scale sort of energy projects and how they come together. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that was, uh, that was, uh, that, that was a, a really interesting time and sort of, you know, got me thinking, uh, you know, more about not the sort of the technologies and systems as they were at that stage, but, you know, the technologies and systems, you know, as they needed to be in order to uh, sort of accelerate down our path to net zero. And, and what was Cambridge like for you uh, coming out of Vancouver, uh, uh, it was cold. <laughs> I showed up, uh, you know, I showed up, uh, you know, in the middle of January to, to start my program. It was a bit of a shock for, you know, a West Coast boy who's not used to, you know, usually the cold temperatures are just on ski days. Um, but it was great. I mean, look, Cambridge is, is such a phenomenal environment for, uh, for learning, right? You know, I was, you know, studying at MIT, you know, I was cross-registered in courses at, at Harvard, at the Kennedy School and at, uh, at the Business School. And, uh, you know, just the exposure to, you know, some of the brightest minds in every possible uh, field of study was just so fantastic. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So did you did you focus on batteries then at MIT? Um, not, no, not really. I mean, I, I, you know, I focused really on sort of the systems engineering. So, you know, not, you know, sort of taking a, a technology agnostic view to how you uh, combine, you know, a number of different technologies together, be those sort of electrical or mechanical or chemical or, you know, whatever, structural even, you know, and, and, and weave those different pieces of technology into a, you know, product that is designed to do a specific purpose. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so it's, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't sort of focused on the, the, you know, the chemistry itself of any particular battery, rather it was, you know, given a particular chemistry, what can you do with it? Um, and, uh, and, and, and not only what you can do with it, but, or what can you do with it, but, you know, how do you take that chemistry and architect it into a product that is, um, you know, most, most, most fit for purpose, most likely to be successful in the marketplace. Um, and that's really, you know, that was, so the, the time that I was at MIT, I'd, I'd been in, you know, the vanadium flow battery space for uh, about six or seven years at that point. And and really, um, you know, it was that thinking and 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 sort of the 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 work that I did at MIT that informed, um, you know, the step that we made in 2013 when myself and some of my former colleagues founded um, what became Avalon Battery. Um, you know, really the you know we were we were working with the vanadium flow battery technology and had been working with it for like I say six or seven years at that point. We knew that the technology had phenomenal uh, potential. In terms of its ability to, you know, especially re regulate, especially the output from renewable power sources, but you know, the the uh, drawing on some of the sort of systems and product work that I, had, you know, thought a lot about through my time at MIT, um, you know, we realized that the way that that technology was being embodied simply was incompatible with the way that renewable power projects were being developed. Um, you know, uh, solar power projects were being delivered out into the field at a rate of, you know, megawatts per week. And vanadium flow batteries were being installed in sites in Southern California, as an example, you know, uh, at a rate of, you know, single digit megawatts per two and a half years. And, it, you know, we just, you just, you couldn't have that length of project development cycle if you were going to be the battery that was going to be the perfect match for solar. So, you know, really the, the, the step, the, the founding step around, around Avalon battery was, um, you know, or the founding concept was, could we take this technology that we knew really well 
and turn it into something that was a totally turnkey product that you could, you know, build it 100% fully functionally complete out of a factory, you know, drop it off the back of a truck, plug it in and have it operating within hours. And, and, and really that's been the mantra that we have carried forward, you know, for the last almost 10 years now. Well, we're originally where flow batteries sort of more at the utility scale. I mean, I've, I've always heard about the sort of the Korean grid and <clears throat> want to get into having you explain how the, the vanadium flow, the vanadium flows back and forth, but were they largely utility scale and sort of made one off? And then what you did was at Avalon really tried to come up with, I think you had like a 30 kW unit. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, so if you look at um, you know flow batteries as they had been installed in the world up until about 2014, you know every one of them looks like a small chemical plant, right? It's got you know pumps and pipes and you know a building that it sits in and a whole engineered project around it in order to make it work. Um, and again, that was you know that's that was a perfectly adequate way of proving the technology worked. But in terms of you know a, a product that's going to move the needle in terms of you know renewable energy deployment. It was it was it was it was it was really challenging um, simply because those you know the timelines didn't line up with one another. So um, yeah, that was that was that was our our focus was you know how do you standardize how do you productize how do you get these things coming off of a production line rather than having them built on site, and you know that whole sort of very product centric mantra was what pushed us in the direction that that ultimately became Avalon Battery. And then ultimately became Infinity because yeah, said, that's so right. Infinity, yeah. Avalon was like five, about five years, and then you realized you needed to merge or get with a with a larger entity. Yeah, well, it was it was so we were um, you know we were we were in sort of the, the 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 venture the venture capital sort of mode of of funding. We had done a Series A in 2014 to get the company off the ground. We'd done a Series B in 2017 to really ramp up our manufacturing capacity. And in 2019, we were we were looking to do a Series C to you know sort of continue to, to scale the business. Um, you know, in that Series C, we were looking to uh, you know strategic investors um, to to you know to be part of the consortium. And um, one of the one of the world's leading vanadium uh, manufacturers, a company called uh, Bushveld Energy, or Bushveld Minerals and Bushveld Energy, um, came to us and they said, "Look, we we really like you guys. We think you're ahead uh, in the space." Um, there's a great strategic fit between your batteries and the materials that we make for them. Um, but we see there being a bigger opportunity, which is to, you know, not just not just have us fund you, but rather have us um, support the merger between you and this other company. Um, that other company being uh, a company based in the UK called Red Tea Energy. Um, it seemed like a great plan from our perspective. There was a lot of terrific synergies between the companies. Um, they have some. They had some very, very good R and D capabilities, some really good sort of commercial analytical capabilities, um, and some very, very sort of good sort of customer centric view of how you actually make the batteries, you know, do something valuable on a particular site. Whereas we at Avalon, you know, had, you know, we'd spent almost all of our time on. Uh, you know the 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 structure of our cell stacks, and then how and then obviously that that sort of the turnkey nature of the product that um, you know was so so core to our overall philosophy of approaching the business. Those two things fit really nicely together, and so we thought there there was sort of you know a terrific opportunity there. Um, it took us about eight months to get the merger actually complete, and you know we 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 completed the merger on March thirteenth of twenty twenty, which. If you recall, it was a bit of a chaotic time in the world. I was over in the UK, not entirely sure if I was going to be able to get home because of this funny little thing called coronavirus, which appeared to be popping up everywhere. 
Um, but, uh, you know, um, you know, we got, we got, we got the, we got the deal done and, um, have been, you know, running the business as a merged company ever since. Sounds great. That sounds great. Let's, let's double back and talk about, have you explain sort of in the simplest term possible, how these, how a flow battery works as opposed to a lead acid battery or a lithium ion battery. Sure. So, uh, you know, fundamentally with a flow battery, what you do is you separate the part of a battery that generates power from the part of a battery that stores energy. Um, you know, you take that energy storage element and turn it into a couple of big tanks of positive and negative reactants. And you take that energy conversion po portion and you build that into a device that we call a cell stack, which is a, you know, it's a stack of, of electrochemical cells connected in series where you take the liquid electrolyte you throw it, flow it through that cell stack, and that's how you generate the power that you know is 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 ultimately useful outside the battery. Um, separating those two things from one another has a number of advantages. Um, you know, first of all, um, obviously the amount of energy that you can put in that overall device is limited only by the size of the tanks where you store the liquid electrolyte. So you can get to much much longer duration batteries. You know full power for, you know, six, eight, 10, 12 hours, say, comparatively inexpensively, because it's only that energy portion that you're replicating as you grow in duration. But so fundamentally separating those, you know, that energy and power generation, the energy, the power generation and energy storage from one another also gives you a lot of advantages in terms of how you manage the charge and discharge process. And, um, you know, specific to our battery, one of the big advantages is that in the vanadium flow battery, the positive and the negative couple are identical to one another. They're just, one of them has been driven in a more positive direction. One of them has been driven in a more negative direction. And what that means is that as you charge and discharge these vanadium flow batteries over their life, you know, the, the, the slight interactions that you get between the positive and negative part of the battery over time doesn't degrade the battery and its fundamental capabilities, right? If you look at the degradation modes of a lot of other batteries, you'll see that it's, you know, the, the, the inadvertent interactions between the positive and negative couple that will ultimately, you know, lead to a decrease in capacity. But for us, because the positive and negative couple are identical, it doesn't make, it, it doesn't make a difference, right? And so what we're able to, what that, what that sort of identicality of the positive and negative gives us is, the, is, is a battery that can cycle tens of thousands of times um, and do that, um, you know, through a state of charge range that, you know, is that, that, that is accessible irrespective of, you know, how many times or you've charged and discharged the battery or how frequently you've charged and discharged the battery. I think you're saying in some of your marketing materials that 25 year life of your batteries, unlike a lithium ion that might be 10 years, yep. but that 25 yep. year life is matching that generation resource, like a solar panel. That's yeah, that, that, that's exactly it. I mean, if you you know if you're a project developer and you are go, you know you've got uh, you want to go and install a big solar array, but um, you know you're going to get more value from your generated energy if you can control control when it's delivered. A battery that has you know the same asset life as the rest of the project that you're constructing is going to have tremendous value to it, right? It's going to be, um, you know, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be something that you can, you know, architect to work together over that full time frame. You're not going to worry about sort of augmentation like you would with a lithium array or replacement, as you know would likely be the case with a lithium array. Um, so, you know, that 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 ability to to build, you know, a single asset, including both the generation and storage component, and have that entire asset available for that 25 years 
is 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 something that you know a lot of our customers view as as tremendously beneficial. And then the next the next huge benefit is safety, right? Of these of these systems. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> um, and and it's you know we usually uh, quip that um, you know our batteries will, are will be easier to will be faster to put out a fire than to start one. And in fact, on our you know if you dig around in our you know our 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 our, uh, our Twitter and LinkedIn profiles, you see that we've actually made a video of the the battery electrolyte doing exactly that. It just you know it literally puts out a flame. Um, you know it's 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 you know the the electrolyte in our battery is is it's battery acid. It's you know it's it's mostly water. Right. And, and so, you know, that gives us, you know, a huge ability to absorb, you know, any excess heat that might be generated if, you know, a cell is performing improperly, you know, I mean, that's a condition that in a lithium array can lead to fires. And in our case, you know, is, is, it, you know, doesn't do that at all. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, but, it, you know, and, and we've been able to prove that we've been able to pass you know, a lot of the UL and, and international standards for battery safety, not because we've put a whole bunch of additional safety measures around the battery itself, but because the battery at its fundamental core, the electrolyte inside the battery, it's not flammable. Right. And where, where does Vanadium come from? I mean, we, we're getting all, I think as a global society, we're getting more and more knowledgeable where lithium comes from. Where's Vanadium come yep. from? Vanadium is everywhere. Um, vanadium is the 13th most common metallic element in the Earth's crust. It's more common than copper, more common than nickel, way more common than uh, than, than lithium, as an example. Um, and uh, but but uh, you know, 90% of the world's vanadium goes into steel manufacturing. Um, you if you put a pound of steel, or sorry, a pound of vanadium into a ton of steel. Um, that steel becomes a whole lot stronger. And so uh, for certain uh, high strength applications like rebar and like uh, certain uh, certain classes of, of deep drawn sort of uh, steel for things like automotive frames, um, you, you end up seeing a lot, you know, uh, some vanadium alloyed with them. Um, with that said, you know, the, the fact that most of the world's vanadium is used in steel manufacturing means that it's the steel producing country, countries that generate the most of it. So, you know, the, the world's um, vanadium right now is primarily comes from um, South Africa, Brazil, China, Russia. Um, you know, there's some deposits in, uh, in, in, in Australia, uh, Western Australia that are starting to come online. Um, so it's it's really been tied to that steel industry um, in terms of the, the the absolute supply of the material. Now uh, there are domestic sources of material, which is which is you know one of the things that we're that we're looking at. But I think the 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 more interesting thing from my perspective, and it's something that a couple of companies around the world, including us, are starting to explore, is there is a huge amount of vanadium that exists inside certain um, waste products that come from petrochemical refining. Um, you know, you, you, you probably know that um, in, the, in the last couple of years, there's been a move towards a low sulfur standard for offshore marine fuels um, and removing, uh, removing sulfur from, uh, you know, from, from bunker crude um, in order to, 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 to meet those standards tends to bring any vanadium that is present in the oil along with it. So, you know, what's happening at these refineries around the world is that you're starting to see these, you know, this, this, this waste material, this so-called spent catalyst material that, you know, yeah, it's got, you know, it's sulfur and it's you know, got a bunch of other stuff in it, but often it's kind of eight to 12% vanadium. That is a, that would be more, you, you could build more batteries than the world is going to need in the, in the next decade with that amount of vanadium. Um, and, and, and so, you know, while there is some industrial process development that's needed to be able to extract, extract that stuff efficiently, once we're able to do that, 
you know, we're looking at a material that is, you know, the, 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 the single sort of critical element inside our battery that we are going to be able to source 100% from, you know, from, from, from waste sources, from, you know, really emphasizing that kind of circular economy question. That is really, really, really interesting, Matt. And, and I just wanted to ask you sort of broadly about chemistries. Obviously, we, we've, we've talked a little bit about chemistries. Yeah. Um, there, there seems to me as a, as a novice in this whole area. Oh, well, Ted, you're hardly a novice. Well, <laughs> I'm just reading in the press. There, just, there must be 50 or 100 permutations of battery yeah. chemistries that are being explored out there. And... Um, and then, I've, and then the most the most intriguing one to me are these iron air batteries. Yep. And what what's your? I mean, how does that work? I mean, you kind of oxidize steel, and then you and then somehow you deoxidize it, and yeah, that, that's exactly it. And and you know, ox, you know, oxidized steel is a fancy word for making the stuff rust, and then you make it unrust. You know, uh, look, it's um, it, it, it's a really intriguing chemistry, and and. One of the things that we spend a lot of time thinking about is, um, you know, what does the landscape for energy storage look like um, when you're thinking about the duration over which different storage chemistries work well? Lithium-ion batteries have done a phenomenal job of proving that batteries can help the electric grid solve problems that exist, you know, from sort of seconds to, you know, an hour or two. Um, what we're really focused on is what we think is daily shifting of electricity, right? How do you take, um, you know, solar production during the middle of the day and turn that into, you know, the four hours of power that's going to serve, you know, peak, peak demand on the electric grid in the evenings or stretch that out to the sort of 10 to 12 hours that's going to take that solar and turn it into baseload overnight. Um, you know, the iron air batteries sort of go to that next level, right? You know, they're typically looking at, you know, applications of sort of 100 to 150 hours worth of worth of either, you know, for a, for a charge or discharge cycle. And, you know, where that's really useful is, you know, doing that, doing that shifting, you know, from sort of days into weeks, right? If you've got, um, you know, if you've got a really clear, you know, crisp, windy weather pattern that's flowing through California. And you've got, you know, like, as we saw on, I think it was May 6th, where you got up over 100% renewable power for the first time. You know, how do you, you know, you've got that great sort of week to 10 days of power. You're going to charge up one of those longer, you know, those ultra long duration batteries. And then the next week when it's cloudy and the air is still, you're still going to have renewable power coming out of one of those much longer duration devices. There's even a step beyond that, and if it, you know, if you if you if you follow the guy, as I know you do, the guys um, in the in the in the hydrogen space, who are talking about how we can generate hydrogen with you know excess renewable power, store it in you know underground salt caverns, or store it in some of the infrastructure that's pr already been built out for natural gas, um, and use that to um, to 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 shift energy over even a longer period of time. You know, how do you take you know, energy from, you know, a, a sunny summer and use it to heat people's homes through a couple of cold nights in November, right? That, that sort of shifting through seasons is something that there's going to be, you know, if we're, if we're going to get to, you know, the absolute pinnacle of net zero, um, you know, some of those solutions are going to be required as well. So, and I think that, you know, if you think of that, that continuum, you know, the, the, the chemistries that exist today, the chemistries that we're developing, you know, the things like iron air and, and, and some of the even sort of longer horizon things like hydrogen all have a really interesting and critical place to play.
That's a really great perspective. It's not, not, not like there's a race for any one particular chemistry to be the salvation. It's going to be a, comb a combination based on those different use applications. And then what would yep. you say, like right now with, with what you're doing with Infinity, what sector are you targeting with your vanadium flow batteries? So really, uh, so, we, so we focus on applications um, that we think of as high throughput, right? I mean, as much as we talk about sort of a 25-year life of the battery, that's a 25-year life, you know, with as many cycles as you can possibly cram into it. Um, um, and, and, and it's because, you know, we don't, we don't see degradation based on the number of cycles. So, um, you know, we look at what that means that, you know, the applications that we look at are ones where you are cycling at least once a day, if not more, and probably doing that over sort of multiple hours. So, you know, just to give you a couple of examples, um, you know, a lot of our projects, especially coupled with the, with solar power generation are about, you know, how do you absorb excess solar generated during the middle of the day and deliver it back onto the grid, you know, in the evening time when, you know, elect electricity uh, prices are, are much higher. Um, we're doing a really interesting project over in Scotland um, where we are standing as a buffer between tidal power generation and a hydrogen electrolyzer, where as the tidal power ebbs and flows four times a day, we do four charge and discharge cycles a day to make sure that the electrolyzer is running 24 seven. Um, you know, four cycles a day with a lithium ion battery is not a, it's not gonna be a long lived proposition. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's something that's interesting to us because it's something, it's an application where, you know, being able to do those four full charge and discharge cycles back to back 365 days a year is, is something where our chemistry really, really excels. Um, the, the final example I'll give you is um, that, uh, you know, especially uh, in the UK um, market, you see a lot of, uh, you know, merchant plants or, or, or plants serving the electric grid that are, that are combining two, you know, they're doing this, this classic sort of revenue stacking model where they're, two, they're doing two different, uh, providing two different services onto the electric grid. First of all, they're doing, they're, they're trading on the, like, on, the, on the energy markets, you know, classic buy low and sell high kind of thing. But when there isn't a spread sufficient to make that trading make sense, they're also providing frequency regulation services. Um, and, and this is where we found that there's a really interesting opportunity for our batteries to work in, 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 in hybridized combination with lithium ion batteries. Um, we, we've just, uh, we've just uh, commissioned a system with, um, with uh, at, a, at a project called the Energy Superhub Oxford, um, which is a hybrid of, of lithium and, and, and our batteries where you know, what we're doing is providing those regulation services. We act as the sort of the front of the tip of the spear as it were, you know, responding almost constantly, almost 24 hours a day to the fluctuations in frequency and voltage on the grid at that particular node. And then when the battery is called in to do either you know, a, a heavier duty regulation service or to start getting into that, you know, that, that merchant trading, that energy market trading mode of operation, that's where the lithium ion batteries can step in. So what that means from our perspective is, is, is we're putting a lot of throughput through our batteries, which, you know, is obviously, you know, a good revenue case for our customers. But it also means that they can provide those two services together while insulating the lithium ion batteries for, from the heaviest wear and tear, right? You're not trying to cycle those things constantly 24-7. That means that the wear and tear in the lithium is going to be reduced. The, the lifetime of the lithium ion array is going to be is going to be extended and together they get sort of you know more revenue and less operating cost out of the project overall 
So, you know, every one of those things, you know, the common theme is, you know, we're tying to assets that are going to be very long lived and we're focused on applications where we're getting very, very high throughput through the batteries. And then in, in, in general, and I know it, it varies dramatically, especially across the United States, where you've got so many different utilities and states and regulators and everything. But, yeah. but uh, you know, here I am, this American going, my goodness, we need as much storage as we can get in California and in America. Are there? Are you finding that the incentives are better in, in the UK or better in Canada? Or how is it sort of stacking up in the global? I know it's a gross, grossly oversimplified question. Yeah. Um... So I've actually been I've been really encouraged um, to see so so the three markets that we operate in are um, primarily North America, the UK, and Australia, and the reason we operate there is because each one of those jurisdictions has a very forward thinking view of the role that batteries are going to be able to play on the electric grid. Um, you know, uh, you know, Australia has perhaps um, some of the biggest challenges to date, simply because so much of their electricity mix is already coming from renewables. Um, we're building a, 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 a um, uh, let me think, how big is it? Eight megawatt hour solar plus storage pro uh, project down there um, in South Australia, because South Australia sees negative electricity pricing on its markets. You know, most days of the summer, uh, you know, it's there's there's simply too much solar um, being more well. There's not too much. There is more solar being delivered on the electric grid than can be absorbed uh, in the middle of the day, and and so that's a tremendous opportunity. Um, but in each one of those, in each one of those three jurisdictions, um, you know, the, I, I sort of think of of the 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 support for new technologies as evolving in sort of a in a in a in a along a continuum, right? We've seen in all three jurisdictions funding for early projects, early examples of where longer duration batteries can be beneficial to the electric grid. Um, certainly the CEC has been involved with that. We've got a couple of projects we're building right now, proving how long duration storage can be beneficial to, uh, to uh, you know, commercial and industrial and remote microgrids. Um, the next stage beyond that is to see um, you know, market design start to start to catch up, right? I mean, um, you know, the regulators who build our electricity markets don't build those markets ahead of the technologies that are able to serve them, right? They always want to prove that the technology is capable first, and then they'll adjust, you know, the market conditions so that independent, you know, developers and, and, and asset owners can go out and, and really accelerate the construction of those, you know, those class of assets. Um, and I think we're we're just at the at, at the earliest stages of starting to see that um, come into play. Um, you know, right now, the, the the around the around the world, the probably the longest um, the, the the longer the longest duration uh, battery we see is being you know fit for purpose. You know, based on market design, is about four hours. We think that's going to shift. You know, out to sort of eight, ten, or twelve. Um, as you know, especially renewables-rich uh, markets like California, like South Australia, um, start to you know see higher and higher levels of, uh, of renewable generation overall. What a great what a great uh, education I've had uh, this afternoon with you. <laughs> Just sort of catching the latest and greatest. I knew I would get that from you, Matt. Um, how are I mean, you and I met? Uh, I want to say six or seven years ago. That's about right. Yeah. Monterey County, Salinas Project, uh, yep. Yep. district that really wasn't ready. I'd never even heard of the term microgrid. Certainly had never heard of Canadian flow, nor had I, frankly. Yeah. A DSA, Division of the State Architect, that probably still hasn't done any Canadian flow projects. 
Yeah, yeah. You, you've you've navigated this, and you've obviously uh, you're obviously doing well. I can just see that by looking at you that you're really healthy. How are you? How are you keeping a balance in your life, <laughs> Mister Harper? There's no there's no balance in my life, Ted. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I yeah. Look, I've got I've got uh, you know we've got a we've got a thriving business. I've got I've got two uh, two young daughters at home, so you know I've definitely got my definitely got my hands full. But uh, you know I I I I get great. Um, you know I'm not. I'm not one to to uh, to unwind by relaxing. So I, you know, I tend to unwind by doing. You know, I'm a, I'm big into cycling. I'm big into squash. I'm big into sort of getting out and and, and getting active as much as I can, um, just because it you know it provides a different focus, right? And it and it and a, and a focus on, uh, on 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 something that doesn't involve you know staring into the laptop and all that kind of stuff. And 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 that you know that that different that different focus is you know what really helps me sort of keep things balanced. At some point in our lives, we are gonna we're gonna hit the squash court together. Oh, good! I'm looking forward to it. That's great. One of my favorite favorite sports, of course, cycling is a big part of my life. Hey, listen, thank you again for being part of this podcast. Yeah, happy to do it. It's always it's always great talking with you, Ted. Great talking to you, and I'll, I'll be I'll be in touch. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks, Matt. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of Flanagan's Net Positive. See you next time. Thank you.